Welcome to the New Hope Podcast. Our mission at New Hope is to engage our city with the love of Jesus, one relationship at a time. We pray this message encourages you in encountering God's love and displaying it to your city. We hope to see you soon. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read parts of it together, and then we're going to answer three questions tonight. So Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it reads this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can each shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs. Um, excuse me, I flipped two pages, forgive me. Um, its head with its legs and its inner parts. Verse 10. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, uh, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We're going to ask three questions tonight. The first two questions we're going to um, answer somewhat quickly, and then we'll spend a little more time on the third question. But the three questions are this, that we see the text highlight. The first question is, who is the Lord? Second question, why the plagues? And then we'll spend the majority of our night answering this third question, why the Passover? Who is the Lord? Why the plagues? And then why the Passover? So question number one, who is the Lord? We see this question explicitly from Pharaoh when Moses and Aaron and the elders begin to have a conversation with Pharaoh where they say, God is calling us out. You must let us go. Pharaoh responds like this, who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. We've got to understand the context just a little bit of what's going on, so I want to kind of give a quick summary of where we are in the story to help kind of put our minds to really see the importance of this question within the text. So from two perspectives, first from the Israelites' perspective, They have been told their entire lives, the generation that's alive at this time, have been told that they are part of God's covenant people. They've been told they are special. They've been told about this God that had revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that and through the story of Joseph and the famine and how they were brought into Egypt, but 400 years later, this generation's in slavery, and all this generation knows is that hundreds of years ago, we heard about this God who revealed himself to our forefathers, But I'm in slavery, and I don't know that this God's all that great. Ultimately, the Israelites, in a very real way, are unequated with the Lord. So it's interesting that specifically when God begins to reveal himself again, in order to call the people out of slavery, he reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush as I am. We've seen the story of Genesis, and the very first week as we began this journey, as we looked at Genesis 1, we saw how everything came into being. And we talked about that God is the supreme creator and God over all, and that there was a point where everything that existed, there was a point where it didn't exist. That God spoke everything into existence, and so everything you and I know, and specifically everything that Moses knows, had always at one point not existed. 
everything that Moses had ever been acquainted with at one point did not exist. And so there's this moment where God shows up and reveals himself and he says, I am. He reveals himself as I am, meaning that I've always been. There is no beginning. There is no ending to who I am. He is revealing himself as the supreme God that they have heard about that they have yet not known in a very real way in this generation. So the Israelite people are in captivity. They've heard about this God, but there's a need for the Israelites to answer who is the Lord as well. The second perspective is we see it from the Egyptian perspective. Something you need to know about ancient, uh, ancient Near East Egyptian mythology, and this, it is this, is that they saw Pharaoh as divine on earth. Right. So Pharaoh was not only just king, But Egyptian mythology, Pharaoh was actually divine on earth. So he was a visual divine being. So imagine Pharaoh thinks this. He sees himself as this. This was a belief of his. And then there is the people that are in slavery coming to Pharaoh who sees himself as divine. The people see him as divine. And they say, our God has told us that you must let us go. And you can imagine an arrogant divine king in his mind simply responds this way, who is your Lord? And why should I obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know him. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. As we see the story unfold, it is over and over and over again, this question of who is the Lord. And I'm telling you, the text is trying to teach it to both Egypt and to Israel, the answer that God is, I am. He is the supreme being. So two passages of scripture where it says this specifically, Exodus chapter 7, Pharaoh will not listen to you, God says. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So there's a very real picture that through all that is going on, God is revealing himself to the Egyptians as the supreme being. He's revealing himself to the Egyptians. But also, Exodus 14 says that God is revealing himself to Israel. Israel saw, Exodus 14, 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. No matter what happens in the story, a key question to the text is, who is the Lord? Now, this is helpful. You go, Jonathan, this is helpful to understand the passage, but, but what does this have to do with me? And here's what it has to do with you. In Exodus chapter 12, we just read it, but let me read it again. Beginning in verse 12, Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. In this moment of the plagues, and in this moment where God is bringing out the Israelite people out of captivity, he is calling down judgments on the gods of that culture. Give another example. We're going to see in a second at the ninth plague where we see light go to darkness. And it's a picture of literally God covering up the sun where it's dark for days. You've got to understand that the supreme God in Egyptian mythology was the sun. And they believed the sun was the creator of all things and that the sun brought life to all things. And so it's actually through the plagues, we're going to see that more in a second, but it's through the plagues that God is revealing that he is the supreme being. He is attacking the gods of the culture. So what does this have to do with you? It's because this question is a question that you and I must answer for ourselves. Who is the supreme God in your life? See, it's a question that philosophers are asking in every generation. It's a question that, honestly, every religion is asking in every generation. Who is God? And by definition, God is the supreme being in creation. And so the question is, what is the supreme thing that you believe to be supreme in creation? And more specifically, even for those in here who would go, you know what, I I would call Jesus as Lord. And I would recognize that the God of the Bible is the supreme God of creation. But even much more in a more practical way, what is the God that you have in your heart? Meaning, think about it this way. I've said it this way plenty of times. But the thing that you pursue the most is the thing that you worship the greatest. So what you pursue above all is what you worship above all. Meaning, you and I, every single day, 
are being drawn by the gods of this world and the gods of our culture to pursue something above all or pursue something other than God, the God of the Bible above all. And ultimately, that what is seen as a picture in the plagues, what is seen as a picture in what God is doing, is he is establishing himself as God over the people by simply having all of them ask and answer the question, who really is this God that is doing this? And so the, how it applies to us is really what is the God that is on the throne of your heart? And see, this, this text would challenge you and I that what is it that is in this culture that you are tempted to worship? For some, it may be money. For some, it may be relationships. For some, it may be this or this or this, whatever. For some, it's health. Maybe for some, it's, it's just simply notoriety. But whatever it is that your heart pursues above all is the God of your heart above all And if we learn from this story, a key component of the Exodus story is God establishing himself and answering the question, who really is this Lord? And you must ask and answer that question for yourself. Question number two, not only who is the Lord, but why the plagues? Why the plagues? I remember the first time really reading the story growing up and going, wow, you know, why ten plagues? What are the significance of the plagues? And just thinking that this is just something God did to bring discipline and judgment, which is true. But the, the significance teaches us something that is much greater than this if we don't notice the connection. So I want you to notice the connection of the plagues to Genesis chapter 1. It's going to connect in a few different ways, and I'm going to walk you through it for us to see. But why the plagues? And ultimately, we see that the plagues are an example of how sin brings chaos and unravels the goodness of God's creation. We already saw in Genesis chapter 1 that God created everything and it was good. We saw that because of sin and God brought his judgment in Genesis chapter 6 and following, we see the flood and it was literally an undoing of God's creation. We see that again here in this story. It connects in a few ways. First is that there are 10 plagues. Why 10? Could have been 9, could have been 11, could have been 12. Absolutely, it could have been any of those things. But if you look at Genesis chapter 1, there are 10 times where God divinely speaks and things are created. And there are ten plagues that undo each of those things that he created. Let's walk through it. In the very first plague, we see what? A body of water turn into blood. Okay, a body of water turn into blood. And the phrasing in the Hebrew is identical to Genesis chapter 1 when it says, let there be light, let there be. And he speaks things into existence. It's the same thing when he says, let there be, that this water, and he used the same language there, turned into blood. We see immediately that something he created as good and water in the earth, and then he eventually separated the waters and all those things, but we see it turn into blood. And because it turned into blood, that there is death and chaos is beginning to unravel. So imagine plague number two, you have this swarm of frogs. Now frogs are animals that can both what? Live in water and on land. So imagine when you have a water ecosystem that is uh, healthy for life, then through blood, it's no longer healthy for life. Guess what everything that's in water that can get out of water is going to do? It's going to get out of water. Do you see even beginning some of the domino effect that the first plague naturally led to the second plague where the frogs came out of the water and eventually took over? But more specifically, in plagues two, three, and four, we see this significance. Plague two, the frog the frogs, plague three, the gnats, and plague four, the flies. Frogs is related to water, gnats are related to land, and flies are related to air. We are seeing in plague one, water. We're seeing in plague two, things that live in water. We're seeing plague three, things that live on land. Plague four, things that live primarily in the air, all of which are going into chaos through the plagues. That when God is pouring out his judgment on sin that he is, we're beginning to see aspects of his creation come undone. Then when you go to plague number five, the death of the livestock, we see the animals on the land are affected. Not just the insects, but we see the animals that are affected. Now I'll admit, plague, plague six doesn't fit perfect into this illustration because it's boils, which is not really necessarily referring to a specific thing in creation, but an aspect of creation. So when you look at Leviticus chapter 13, when it talks about boils and what you are to do with boils and someone who has boils, it's clearly a description that the body is unclean. 
that the body is unholy, and the boils of the plague is giving us a picture of the concept of unholiness and being undone because of the plagues. Where God created all things good and holy, the boils are a picture of God's created beings beginning to become undone. In plagues 7 and 8, you see the hell and the locusts and what's destroyed, vegetation. So we saw insects on the land, we saw animals on the land, and now we see vegetation on the land that all is being destroyed because of the unraveling of God's good in creation because of our sin when he brings judgment. And when you look at plague chapter 9, I've already mentioned it, but we see a picture that not only in God's created order, but also specifically for the Egyptians, is the sun was the supreme god. They had, they had a pantheon of gods. But the sun was the god that they believed all creation and life came from. It was the supreme thing. It was the constant. The fact that the sun came up meant each day they believed that that meant the sun god was giving them goodness and the sun god was giving them life. So imagine this moment where God covers up the sun with his hand and the sun doesn't come up. The supreme god of the Egyptians is being controlled by the supreme god of Israelites. Do you see how this goes back to question number one? Who is the Lord? But here's the principle. Once again, Jonathan, how do the plagues apply to me? This is good information, but how does this apply to me? Because there's an important law in God's creation that we've got to get, and it's this. When you and I violate God's design, it leads to unleashing disintegration and chaos in his created order. Let me say that again. When you and I violate God's design, we naturally see from this that it unleashes disintegration and chaos in his created order. In Genesis chapter 1, before he created anything, everything was in chaos, but he brought order to it day by day. In Genesis chapter 6 and following with the flood, what happened? The undoing of God's creation because of judgment and chaos came back onto the world again. And we see it once again in the plagues that when you and I violate God's design, chaos ensues because of it. It's not hard for us to get this concept by just looking at the world around us. We see chaos in the world around us. We see brokenness. We see hurt. We see famine. We see war. We see injustice all around us. And all of those are byproducts of what? Men and women created in God's image, not honoring him, but violating his creation and bringing disintegration and chaos in the world around us. You and I were what? In Genesis 1, we were commanded to reign and to rule under God over his earth, and we greatly affect what happens. And when we violate those things, we see chaos ensue. You get this personally because when someone has sinned against you, and someone has violated you as someone who is made in the image of God and has sinned against you, there is chaos and disintegration, maybe physically in your life, but definitely emotionally and spiritually in your life. But there's a second truth that we see perfectly intertwined amidst the plagues. The plagues, yes, are God's judgment and the undoing of the goodness of his creation, but it also the plagues are a means of which he brings about redemption to his covenant people. We've talked about this in the fall with our study in 1 Peter. We talked about it last week with Joseph. But in God's sovereignty, there's this perfect intertwining of what from our perspective is suffering and absolutely suffering and judgment and hurt because of man violating and abusing one another by violating God's created order. But even in that moment, we see God redeeming that suffering in order to redeem his covenant people. And so you and I can have hope and you and I can recognize that even in the chaos of the brokenness and the sin around us, that God is still in his judgment and that chaos working in his sovereignty always to bring about redemption for his people. So you and I amidst suffering can always have hope. And so for us, we must see the beauty of this, that God is supreme, but he's also the redeemer as we look at this story. But as we turn to Exodus chapter 12, we get to our third question where we're going to slow down a little bit. Why the Passover? Why was the significance of this? We've already seen, probably a little bit imperfectly, how each plague had significance, not only to them, but it also teaches us something. So each plague has significance. God was intentional with each one. There's an order to it. It made sense. So why the Passover? 
Why did God choose to do it this way? There's two questions we got to answer in order to answer that question. And the first question along with that is why the firstborn? See, you're going to notice in the Passover there is a central character here that is dealt with, and it is the firstborn. And here's what we, I want to read a couple passages of Scripture, how we see this idea of firstborn. But before I do, I want to introduce a concept to you that is simply this. It's called the federal headship of of a people or a federal headship of an organization or of a family that we'll see all throughout Scripture. And you and I got to understand this concept. So let me illustrate this concept before we see it in Scripture for a second. When we think about federal headship, it's this idea that one person represents the whole. Legally, sociologically, practically, spiritually, there's one person who represents the whole. We see this practically with an ambassador. You and I, uh, as, as uh, here in America, we will have ambassadors in other countries. And other countries will have ambassadors here in the U.S., The ambassador is the person who is representing the whole of a people. The ambassador does not make decisions just for himself or herself. They make decisions for the whole of the people. And the decisions they make affect the whole of the people. This is true for other elected officials. This is true for other things. And for some of you who come from a very um, family-oriented culture, understand the idea of a patriarch in a family much more than I do as a a, uh, European Uh, individualistic culture that I grew up in here in America. But some of you, even growing up in America, still have a lot of that DNA of that, and so you may understand this a little bit better. Now, when we come to Scripture, this idea of family is more important than the idea of the individual. Idea of family is more important than the individual. And so when we see a picture of an individual representing the whole, so when we come to the firstborn, we see a picture of an individual representing the whole family. And the firstborn is an important part in this. So Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 13, says this, Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Now pause for a second. What, what, what are you talking about here? What are you talking about? Here's the idea. is God created us in Genesis 1 and 2, And all things were good. And we, because he gave us life, we owe our life to him. And all he asked in return was to be faithful, to multiply, subdue the earth, and don't eat of this one tree. But you and I, specifically Adam and Eve, thinks, Adam and Eve um, said, you know what? No, I'm going to disobey. And he told them, God told them, you owe your life to me. I gave you life. You owe your life to me. And if you disobey me, the debt that you will have to pay is with your life. So what happens? Adam and Eve sin, Adam and Eve fall, Adam and Eve rebel. And what is the debt that is owed? Life. And so when we continue throughout the story, you're going to see how this principle of the firstborn as the federal head of the family represents the payment unto God for life. Which is why we see this, and I'm reading verse 13 because it deals with animals. It's true for animals. You're going to see it's true for plants, and you're going to see it's true for humans. Specifically, Abel, in Genesis chapter 4, he brought the best of his first fruits unto God. And it was considered to him as worthy worship. But, here's the idea. The firstborn of everything is God's. So, he says, take a donkey, you shall redeem that donkey. Meaning, you shall pay the debts... Or you will pay the debt with the donkey's life. You can pay the debt for the donkey, or the donkey will die. And then he goes on to say, Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. The principle is the same. The firstborn must be redeemed with a payment, or the firstborn must die. Exodus 22. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Now, I can tell you that you are probably objecting and struggling very similar to this as I did as I began to process this. Hold on, you're telling me that God expects payments from the firstborn as the federal representation of the debt of the entire family with his life or with the redemption payment. That they going, God, hold on, you're telling me that God expects death in return because of our sin. Well, 
Yeah, absolutely. This is what we stand, see all throughout Scripture, that you and I are dead in our trespasses and sin. And without redemption payment, our payment for our debt unto God, which cannot be forgiven, is with our lives. But, but why can't God just forgive? Why does God have to expect a payment? Let me illustrate it this way. Is that when someone wrongs you, we all get this, that there is a debt that is paid unto that person, or there's a debt that that person owes you, right? So if someone steals from you, right? Let's use simple financial. Someone steals $100 from you, that they owe you $100, correct? They owe you $100. You can do one of two things. You can demand payment, so therefore you have the money back, or you can choose to forgive them. But listen to me which forgiveness is what you should do, right? We see this picture of forgiveness, but here's the thing. Forgiveness is still costly because someone lost $100. And for for you to forgive someone for stealing $100, you are yourself paying the debt for that theft. Someone is paying in every sin that takes place. So when... You owe God your life and you sin against Him. The payment is life. And so one of two options. God can just choose to forgive you, but someone still has to pay that payment. And we're going to see that play out here in a second. But the point is, we can get that in God's justness, He can't ignore the debts. But the only way to forgive us is for another means of redemption in the payment. And this is what's beginning to play out. This is the idea of the donkey. Either you pay the redemption price of the donkey, or the donkey dies. And here, you must redeem the first sons. And so, how do we see the payment of that? Numbers 33, 40 through 51. Let me read it quickly for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, he's talking about firstborn, and he's talking about redemption. Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. You notice that there is a tribe within the 12 tribes of Israel that one of them is fully as a payment unto God in service to God. That's the Levites. And as the redemption price of the 273 of the firstborn. Notice he's very specific. He knows. He made them count. How many firstborn are there? Of the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of the male of the Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary. This is a specific type of weight measurement. And you should give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the people of Israel, he took the money. 1,365 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons according to the word of the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Here's the idea. is You see a very specific to the number, God beginning to say, every firstborn must be redeemed because they represent the entire family because they are the next patriarch of the family. And therefore, everyone must be redeemed or they must give up their life. This is even to today. Many Jewish cultures still play out this idea. The custom of redeeming the firstborn is still preserved. And so here's the idea. In a Jewish family, when the firstborn son is born, a priest or rabbi who is, who is considered or represents the tribe of Aaron, specifically, or the family of Aaron, will come and will have a conversation, a blessing, with the people and with the family. And they'll ask the parents, would you rather have five shekels or would you rather have your firstborn? To which they would reply, I would rather have the firstborn. And then they will pay a payment of equal price of five shekels unto the rabbi or the priest. And then the priest will pray number six over the family. See, when we get to number six, because we read number six every week as a benediction to our church and And when we get to it in our reading, I'll preach through that passage, but I want you to see the significance of number six, is that the high priest of the day would receive a payment from families for the redemption of the firstborn, and then once that redemption has made, he would pray the high priestly blessing of number six over the family. It's It's a picture of blessing to those who are the redeemed people of God. How does this apply to me? 
The reality is you and I must grasp that we all owe God a debt. We all owe God a debt. We owe God a debt because of our sin against him. And the reality is the picture of firstborn is teaching us that the first of God's is his. And we owe God a debt. And we will either pay that debt with our life or with a redemption price. Just to give, just to help us see the picture just quickly a little bit further as we see this idea of first play out all the time. Eventually, in Joshua, when the people of God go into the promised land, the first city they encounter is Jericho. And what are the rules to Jericho? You can take nothing from Jericho, but you must sacrifice everything in Jericho, and you are to take nothing from Jericho. Why? Because that was the payment unto God for the land. We see this promise to give a first of your fruits unto God. We see specifically when we get to Leviticus, we're going to see a feast called First Fruits, which is a picture of the first day of the harvest day. The first grains they get from the harvest was called the Feast of First Fruits, and they were to sacrifice the first of every harvest unto the Lord. And all throughout Scripture, we see a picture that the first belongs unto God. And we will pay as a sacrifice of our first unto him. So the principle of first fruits, whether it be animals, whether it be vegetation, or whether it be humans, we all owe God a debt with our lives. And we will either pay that payment with our lives or with a redemption price. This is the picture of what is happening in the Passover. So why the firstborn? Because it was the payment for the family's sins. So the second question to still answer why the Passover, though, is why the lamb? See, because this is how it all ties together and it gives us hope. Why the lamb? And the simple answer is this. The lamb was the redemption price for the firstborn in Israel, in Egypt that night. It was the substitute for what would happen. Now, I want to give us a quick history of how we even see this play out, the history of the story of the lamb, even prior to Exodus. One of the passages in Genesis that we didn't get a chance to get to, which is a beautiful picture of what we're talking about, is Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 22, God comes to Abraham and he said, You owe me life of the firstborn of your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, you and I read this in a very individualistic culture and a very not understanding the role of family and not understanding this idea of first fruits very well. And we read that and go, that's a crazy request that God gave to Abraham. And in one sense, it very much is a crazy request. But I'm always intrigued by the fact that Abraham just immediately obeyed. Now, I think there's faith. I think there's trust. Absolutely, the text will tell us that. But it also allows us to see into Abraham's mind a little bit that Abraham went along with it so easily because he understood the concept of what we're talking about of first fruits and the firstborn. He understood that in the, specifically as we look through Jewish history and we look through the Old Testament, over and over and over again, there's a picture that the firstborn is, is an offering unto the Lord. Now, uh, Abraham clearly knew and understood, too, that God gave him a promise, and so he didn't understand how he was going to offer this up and, and how there was going to be life, but he just trusted the Lord, and it's a beautiful picture. But the very center of the text is Genesis chapter 22, verse 7. And when I say the very center of the text, because we see a very intentional way that the writer writes the story. Specifically, he writes it through dialogue. And then at the beginning of the story, we see God speak. Then we see Abraham speak. Then we see Isaac speak, then we see Abraham speak again, and then we see God speak. And all of it is pointing to say that the one time Isaac spoke, it's actually the center of the story. God spoke, Abraham spoke, Isaac spoke, Abraham spoke, God God spoke again. It's a very intentional literary way. So what is it that Isaac said? And this is an incredible picture. Genesis 22, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham's response, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. See, the story right here in Genesis 22 is an integral question that the rest of Scripture is answering. Hey, I see all the elements of the sacrifice except for the redeeming price of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, And so, where is it? Where's the sacrifice? 
And what is Abraham's response? God will provide the sacrifice. When we move all the way up to the Exodus story, we once again see this happen. We look at the Abraham and Isaac story, we see, in fact, that God does provide a sacrifice. He provides a ram caught in the thicket. And then when we come to the Exodus story, once again, that Isaac, the payment for sin for the family was the sacrifice of Isaac. That was what is owed unto God. And once again, Israel owes their firstborn. Now, I need you to notice something. When we come to the 10th plague, unlike some of the previous plagues, there was a distinction between what was happening in Egypt and what was happening in the lands of Israel at the time in their tribe. We could see the plagues coming on Egypt, but not coming on Israel. But when we come to this 10th plague, the angel of death that is going to pass over the land does not excuse Israel. I want you to notice something that the, the, the uh, angel of death is passing over Egypt and Israel. Now, the question, though, is how does life come to Israel? And it is through the substitute of the sacrifice, which is the lamb. So it's this moment when um, they recognized that the lamb was sacrificed. And what did they have to do? Is They had to take the blood and they had to put it on the door, doorpost and cover up the doorpost. But here's the picture and here's the idea is that the firstborn was the payment for man's debt of sin unto God. And I don't mean to be morbid, but I want to give us a visual picture that imagine at dinner that night and you're the firstborn sitting at the table. You've been told what's going to happen. You, in the, in the days, have been watching God um, powerfully move in plagues. And so you fear God and you know God's real. And when Moses speaks, it's going to happen. And Moses just told you that the angel of death was about to pass over and the firstborn was going to die and all would die unless, for the Israelites, they sacrificed the lamb and they put blood on the doorpost to represent that the firstborn in this house has been paid for. So imagine you're the firstborn sitting at the table going, the only way I'm sitting here and I'm alive is because that lamb is laying right there dead. Imagine the severity of that moment going, that's me. I'm the firstborn. I should be dead. As I look at my Egyptian neighbors and death has come upon them, I deserve death also. However, there's this moment where you see that the lamb died in your place. Let me conclude this way. There are two major takeaways that we can see from this. The first is that salvation is under the blood of the Lamb. Salvation is under the blood of the Lamb. We see the picture in Abraham, uh, with Genesis 22 and Abraham. We see the picture here in Exodus 12. Is that our debt unto God for our sin is our life. But God steps in and provides a substitute in order that that payment may be paid for us. Once again, we owe God a debt, and the debt cannot just be ignored. Someone has to pay it. And we see in Genesis 22, we see, a, a, the, um, we see the ram pay it. Here we see the lamb pay it. And now we can understand the language and the beauty of John chapter 1 when John the Baptist, seeing Jesus walk towards him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. See, if you have your Jewish lens on for a second and you grew up in Jewish culture and you understood the importance of the Lamb because you're still eating this Passover year after year and you're understanding the story of the Passover Lamb, it would have, no one would have missed the reality of what John the Baptist is saying. See that Jesus guy right there? He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And when we look at how Jesus, what, on the night that he was betrayed, was what? Was having the Passover meal. And during that Passover meal, he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And then in the cup of redemption, we're going to look at this when we get closer to Easter, as we walk through an authentic uh, first century Seder meal together, we're going to see that there are four cups that are part of the Passover meal. And the third cup is called the cup of redemption. And it was the cup you drink after supper. So when the gospel says that after supper, Jesus took the cup, we know it was the third cup. We know it was the cup of redemption. And we know that he said, this cup is my blood that is shed for you. 
He's clearly going that it's under the blood of the Lamb that you have life. And when I die tomorrow at twilight, Matthew 27 tells us that Jesus died at twilight. If you read Exodus 12, when do you sacrifice the Lamb? At twilight, the sacrificial Lamb on Passover is sacrificed at twilight. And Jesus goes, this is my blood that is shed for you. None of his disciples would have missed this moment at this Passover Lamb going, my body is the bread. My blood is, uh, or excuse me, this wine is the blood. My blood is a sacrifice for you. I am the lamb that will be sacrificed. And therefore, why you and I celebrate Jesus is because you and I owe our debt to God with our life. But a payment has been paid in the person of Jesus. So you and I no longer have to fear the judgment of the angel of death. But we sit under the blood of the lamb and we can celebrate life. This is the good news of the gospel in all of the story of Scripture, Old and New Testament, and right here in Exodus 12. Why the Passover? Because the Passover is screaming, Jesus is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And not only here do we see a very real picture of captivity, that they are enslaved, and it's through the sacrifice that they have life and that they have freedom to be in covenant relationship with God, that they felt it in a very real way. And for hundreds and thousands of years, every single year, they would eat and they would celebrate so that they could taste the bitter herbs. They could taste the wine. They could taste the lamb. They could smell it, all of it with their senses. For this moment when Jesus gave up his life, They could see it. They could taste it. They could see the reality of what was going on. And so for you and I today, we must see that it's under the blood of the Lamb that salvation comes. But not only do we see salvation under the blood of the Lamb, but the second huge encouragement for us is we see assurance is under the blood of the Lamb. Last night I was having a conversation with some guys who... um, we meet together, and part of the things we do when we meet together is they just help me with my sermons, right? They, they help me uh, find ways to apply. They just, we just think through, we study, we sermon prep together. And so we were talking about this, and um, I give credit to Prom because Prom goes, you know, when I read this story, here's an important truth that I see, and I never re- recognized it. So let me illustrate uh, what Prom said this way. Imagine you're in... Um, you're in Egypt that night, and imagine you are a father. And imagine there are two fathers having a conversation, and one father says to the other father, hey man, you kind of nervous about tonight? Right? I mean, I've been watching these plagues, and Moses has been moving his staff around, and all these things are happening, and and I've been hearing about this God, and Moses is saying that the angel of death is going to come tonight, and the firstborn is going to die. And I only have one son. And I'm just a little bit nervous about what might happen tonight. And the other father goes, no, didn't you uh, do what Moses said? Didn't you sacrifice the lamb? Didn't you put the blood on the doorpost? Didn't you do that? And the, other, the father goes, yeah, I, I did those things. But, but what if I didn't put enough blood? Like, like what if I didn't do it right? What, what if I just did something wrong? And the other father is with confidence going, no, but it's okay. Just, just do it. Trust it. It's going to be okay. And this guy goes, man, you got three sons. Like, if if one dies and you do it wrong, you at least have two more. I only have one. But this guy goes, no, I'm confident it's going to be fine. So imagine the night comes and the Passover lamb, or excuse me, the angel of death passes over. How, How many or which of their sons died that night? The answer is that neither. And here's the point. How does being under the blood of a lamb give us assurance? And here's, here's, here's how. One of the things that I know I've struggled with and I know you've struggled with, because as your pastor, I get asked this question a lot. How do I know that I have covenant relationship with God? How do I know that I'm, to use the language of Scripture, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know that my sins are forgiven? How do I know that when the judgment day comes, that Scripture says, that when the angel of death comes in judgment on my life, that I'm going to be okay? How can I know And here's how this story gives us assurance. is because both of these gentlemen, one who was doubting their faith and one who was confident in their faith, both had the same outcome. And here's the point. Is that your faith and your assurance of salvation is not in the intensity of your faith, but in the object of your faith. And in this moment, one had struggled with their faith 
and one was confident in their faith, and one wasn't assured that salvation was there. One was confident, and you may be a Christian and a follower of Jesus who go, you know what, I see that guy, and he's confident, and I'm not that confident. Do, do I just need to believe harder? Do, do I just need to add intensity to my faith? Do I just need to, you know, add strength to my faith? What do I got to do to have confidence? And it's when you recognize that it's not the intensity of your faith, but it's the object of your faith that gives you assurance. And you and I can rest that when we are under the blood of the Lamb, meaning we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, as Isaiah says, that we've been made white as snow, that there's a guarantee of salvation because the price has been paid for us. And because the object has been paid, the object being the person of Jesus, you and I, even when our emotions betray us, can have confidence to go into the night and know that life will still be there tomorrow. Why? Because the object of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, His death was sufficient to save you and to hold you for all eternity. Now I want us to get a picture here. When the Israelites, God told them, Moses told them, hey, once you go into your house, don't come out. Because once you come out of your house, you're no longer under the blood of the Lamb. And I can't guarantee life. You must stay under the blood of the Lamb. Now, what that tells us is two things. One, we need to be under the blood of the Lamb. But two, it also tells us the insufficiency of that animal lamb in that moment. The insufficiency meaning that they recognize that this salvation in this moment is good in this moment. But it's not good enough there's, there's still a need for a greater sacrifice. So they would leave Egypt, they would go into the wilderness, and they would eventually settle in the promised land. And what would happen? They would have a ritual of sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because that lamb was good for that night. But if you walked outside of that lamb, you needed another lamb and you were no good. And there's this constant insufficiency in the lamb of God as the sacrifice in the Old Testament. But here's the confidence when Jesus comes and says, that it's no longer going to be an animal that I've created, but it's going to be my own life. And through the shedding of my blood, you will be put under the blood of the Lamb, and it will cover you, your past, present, and future sins. You can't get out from under it, because it is sufficient, it is eternal, and you, but, and this brings us back to the point we're making, it gives us complete assurance that when we have surrendered our life to Jesus, that we are no longer under the judgment of God in His justice and His just judgment where we owe Him our lives and we will pay our lives for our lives unless we call on Christ as the redemption payment. The entire Old Testament is building, building in this theology that you will either pay God the debt with your life or a redemption price will be paid. And Jesus steps in and says, I'm that redemption price for you. If you're covered under the blood of my sacrifice, salvation has come unto you. And you can rest with confidence that this sacrifice is good for all sacrifices. And there will be no need for another sacrifice. There won't be a need for another lamb. Because I am the perfect lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So in closing, I simply ask you this question. Are you under the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you just for this sobering reality that because of our sin that we owe our life to you. We owe a debt unto you and the payment is our life. And we will pay that debt with our life with eternal death Unless there is a redemption payment. Which is why you sent your son and he died so that the redemption payment would be paid in full. That he who knew no sin became sin, meaning he took on all of our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That he took on our sin so we could take on his redemption payment. There was a substitute that was made in that moment. The Exodus story tells us that we will pay our life unless something stands in as a substitute and gives its life. And Jesus, we must recognize 
that we will pay a payment of our life unless something steps in and substitutes for us. And we know that that is you, Jesus, who stepped in and was substituted and paid the price for us. So, Jesus, we worship you. Jesus, we give our lives to you. We celebrate you. We'll never forget. We'll never forget. So, Father, I pray for two things over this room. One is the first truth of salvation under the blood of the Lamb. If there's anybody in here tonight that is not under the salvation, because meaning they're not under the blood of the Lamb, meaning they don't have salvation in you, that tonight would be the night that you cover them with your blood. That they call out to you as Lord and Savior. First question tonight, who is this Lord? I pray that they would call out, He is my Lord. And that you would wash them white as snow with your blood. That they would be under the blood of the Lamb. And second, Father, I pray over this room for the Christian in here who at times, and maybe even today, is just doubting, am I really saved? Am I really in right relationship with God? Would you encourage them tonight? Let them not look to their intensity of faith. But let them take their eyes off themselves and fix their eyes on the object of their faith, which is you, Jesus. And if we recognize that we are in you, then there is no reason to doubt. When our emotions betray us, you never will. And we can rest in the object of our faith. And that object is the supreme creator of all things. And he will hold us tight. And he will never let us fall. He will never let us go. And we can rest in confidence that we are part of the covenant people of God because we are under the blood of the Lamb. So would salvation come to this room? Would assurance come to this room? Would you be glorified in this room? pray all this in Jesus' name. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you and we hope to see you soon.